Good morning, how are you? How you doing? All right, all right, that sounds all right. Good, for those of you who are here in our overflow spaces. Look, I love when I ask that question. I do, you know, I want a little response, but I think it'd be funny if you answered the same way when someone asked you at work tomorrow, because I love when you ask in a crowd, everyone goes, woo! So tomorrow at work, the first person who asks you how you're doing, I just want you to go, woo! And just, just see if that doesn't change at least your day, maybe their day. Uh, as well. Uh, my name is Jarrett Stevens. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Soul City, and we're right in the middle of a six-week teaching series where we're walking through the whole of the Bible, and we're looking at it through a different framework, a, a lens that helps us get it without being maybe intimidated or overwhelmed by the Bible, because let's be honest, at times it can feel that way. And so we're looking at kind of the bigger story of the Bible through four small words. And if you missed the last couple of weeks, you can go online to catch up to where we're at. But I'm going to give you a little brief kind of primer on where we've been so far and the big idea of these four small words. So we said there's really four words that tell four movements of the Bible. The first movement is Genesis 1 and 2. That's the creation account. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And that word is of. And so what that reminds us is that you are created in the image of. Okay, guys, answers are on the board. I'm trying to help. I'm trying to help, all right? So let's try that again. You were created in the image? Of. Nailed it. Of God. You're created in the image of God, and that's important for you to know in your story that all of us, every single one of us, is created in the image of God. Second word we started last week, which is this word between Genesis 3 through Malachi 4. We got through Genesis 3 last week. Got the rest to get through today. And, uh, and, and what that reminds us is that sin comes, what's the word? Between us. Sin comes between us and God. Sin comes between us and each other. And the whole Old Testament is a study in what happens when sin enters in and how it separates us from God and separates us from each other. But then God makes a way and sends his son, and that's the gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the story of God with us, how God comes to be with us and what life with him is like. And then it all leads up to what happens in Acts chapter two. And I can't wait for us to get to this week where we see a moment where the Holy Spirit then comes to the earth and inhabits the people who call God their father. And what we see then in the fourth word, the fourth movement of the Bible is God in us, that God is actually in us. Now that's the whole big story of the Bible. And the reason we're walking through that is so that you can better understand it so you can better communicate it with people who want to know or want to hear about who this God is and ultimately so that you can know the God who gave you this book and so that you can be in a transformational relationship with him. So we're going to get into it today. Uh, if you would, please, I want to ask you to grab a Bible if you would, if you brought one with you, fantastic. If not, there should be one in your seat back, both here in our overflow spaces, there should be one in your seat back. And would you grab this little note card? We created this for you so you can keep up. Maybe you have questions or thoughts or things you want to uh, write down, or maybe you just like to doodle. And you can do that during this message if you want on the note card. So grab a pen, grab this, grab a Bible, and we are going to get into it. I, we are not messing around today. So if you stop and go, can you repeat that? No, I'm not going to. We are moving forward. We got a lot to cover today, all right? So what we're going to do is walk through the entire Old Testament in a couple of minutes. Now listen, I spent two semesters in Bible college on Old Testament survey. Another two semesters studying specific books within the Old Testament and we're going to walk through it in a couple of minutes. <laughs> so what that means for you, just so you know, is that when you walk out of here today, you will have a minor in Old Testament studies, <laughs> which in this tough job market, guys, money in the bank. <laughs> just look at me. 
money in the bank. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of walk through, but I think honestly, before we get into any of the kind of the movements within this movement of the word between, uh, there's really two sentences, two phrases that uh, sum up the whole Old Testament and they're written between every line of the Old Testament and they're written between the lines of your life and my life. It's this one simple thought that kind of sums it all up. It's that God is faithful and we're forgetful. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. More faithful than we could even know. More faithful than you would even believe. More faithful than you would even recognize. God is faithful. And yet the truth is, we are, I am at least, so forgetful. So forgetful of God's faithfulness. So forgetful of God's goodness and his activity in my life. This is what we see repeated again and again and again. You can sum up the whole Old Testament. And let's be honest, it can tell the story of our lives if we were to be really honest. At certain times, at certain points in our lives, this is just so true. God is always faithful and we are just about always going to be forgetful. This is what happened in the garden. Adam and Eve forgot God's faithfulness, that God said, everything is yours. Delight in it all. Delight in each other. Delight in creation. All I ask is that you not eat of this one tree. And they forgot God's faithfulness. They focused on the thing he said no to, and they thought that he was holding out from them, and they thought that they could be like God. They forgot how faithful God was, and it continued for generation after generation after generation right up to today right up to me, and right up to you. And so knowing how forgetful we are, God decided to put his faithfulness on display, and he established something just a few generations after Adam and Eve. And it's this idea of covenants, that God established covenants, promises with us to remind us of his faithfulness. For the next couple of moments, we're going to look at the covenants and the commandments of God as found in the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis 17, turn to Genesis 17. It's on page 10 of the Gray Bibles, if you're using one of those. Genesis 17. We're going to look at these covenant promises and then the commandments that God gives us. The covenants were to remind us of God's faithfulness, and the commandments were to guide us into a way with God in this world. So let's talk for a second about these covenants. What are they? Well, they are a promise. They're a contract that God makes with us where God says, when all else fails, and it will, God says, I will be faithful. When all else fails, I will be faithful. That's a covenant. That's a promise. It's like a contract, a faith contract that God makes with us. First one he made to Noah after God had flooded the earth, he said to Noah, never again will I do that. And so he gave a rainbow as a sign of his faithfulness as a covenant. But perhaps the most famous and the most known covenant in the Old Testament is the covenant that God makes with Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And that's what I want us to look at. It starts in Genesis 15, but I want us to pick up in Genesis 17 because that's where God gets really specific with it. So Genesis 17, we're going to look at a covenant that God makes with Abraham. This is what it says. As for me, this is God speaking, as for me, this is my, what's the word? Covenant. This is my promise. This is my agreement. This is my commitment to you. You'll be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you the father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I love that because God's given a little spoiler alert to something we're going to talk about in a little bit. Kings will even come from you, Abraham. I will establish, verse 7, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant 
between me and you and your descendants after you and for generations to come to be your God and to be the God of the descendants after you. This is a big covenant promise that God is making. He is saying to Abraham and Sarah, who just so you know, are in their 90s at this point. I'm going to make a nation come from you. Now, as if they weren't old enough already to begin with, they had spent most of their life wrestling with infertility. Here they are in their 90s after decades of trying, desperately desiring to have a child, to start a family. They were unable to. And I know in this room, in our overflow space, people listening online right now, I know that there are enough folks with an earshot of this who know what that pain is like, that struggle is like, that wondering, God, where are you in this? Do you hear, do you know our desire? And so God speaks right into that with them. And what God does through Abraham and Sarah is something he does through us. His faithfulness always goes between what we see for ourselves and what he sees for us. God's faithfulness always goes between what we see for ourselves, how we see things currently, and what he sees for our lives. Because Sarah actually did become pregnant in her 90s, by the way against all odds, gave birth to a son named Isaac. And Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob actually had 12 sons. And those 12 sons would have families of their own and they would form 12 tribes. And those tribes would eventually come together to form what would be known as the nation of Israel. So within a few short generations, God's promise to Abraham was already fulfilled. Why? Because God is a covenant-keeping God. He always keeps his promise. He always keeps his promise. And with each promise kept, God establishes a trail of faithfulness for us to follow and to find him that you can walk down for the last thousands and thousands and thousands of years and see with each covenant what God is doing. God is stepping between all of our nows and his not yets. That's what a covenant promise does from God. It's to bridge the gap between your now, how things are right now, and his not yet, his timing, his way. It bridges the gap between our here, right, where we kind of see ourselves, and his there, where he will lead you, because he is a covenant-keeping God. And so for all of us, for any of us who feel like we are stuck here and now, and we're wondering where God is, may I offer just a bit of encouragement to you. The God who knows you, loves you, and created you is a covenant-keeping God. He is a promise-keeping God. He has not forgotten about you. He will not forsake you. He will take care of you because that's who he is. And that's what we see all throughout the Old Testament. But people didn't always recognize it. As such, people would forget the faithfulness of God. And so, just like God's covenants were to remind the people of his faithfulness, God gives us commandments in the Old Testament that serve as sort of his way of lovingly leading us through our wayward, wandering hearts. So God gives us, in Exodus 20, 
the Ten Commandments. Are you familiar with the Ten Commandments? I'm, my hunch is yes, you're familiar. You've seen the movie at least. Okay, so just nod your head. Right, so you're familiar. Ten Commandments, major significant moment in the Old Testament. Exodus 20, God gives to his leader Moses the Ten Commandments as a way of living with God. Now we can kind of get stuck on the rules and the thous and the these and the shall nots, but they're actually a way. It's a way of the people of God to live with God in this world. They're a very significant symbol of this time between where sin had separated us from God. So because we could not just be with God, God says, here's a way that you can live with me. These are more than just kind of like a to-do list that your spouse might leave or your parents left for you when they went on a business trip. This is a holistic way of living with God that actually blesses God, is good for you, and draws the attention of the world to the God who gave you this way. That was the point of the Ten Commandments and the over 600 laws that exist in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And each of them points to this way of living with God. Each of them is written. Every letter of every law is written in love. It's for God to say, look, I want to protect you. I want to guide you. I want to guard you through this world, through all of the kind of desert wanderings of your life, through all of your nows and your not yets, through your sin to ultimately what would be their salvation. And as clear as these commandments were and as consistent as God was with these commandments, you want to guess what the people of God did with them? Anyone want to just take a guess? Do you think they followed them, submitted their lives to God, and spent the rest of their days worshiping God in the joy of following his commandments? Nope. They forgot every single one of them. And the ones that they didn't forget, they just broke, outright broke. They neglected God's law and they neglected God in the process. So because God is a faithful God, regardless of how forgetful we are, God says, okay, okay, then let me create a space, a place for you so that you will always know that I am with you. I will create a place for you that you can always point to, that you can always look to so that you will know that I am here and I am with you. And so God rolls out this idea of the tabernacle and eventually the temple. So if you have a Bible, turn to Exodus 25. It's page 56 in the Gray Bible. So just jump ahead just a little bit to Exodus 25, page 56. We're going to look at the, te- uh, the tabernacle and the temple and the priest and how all those things work together to show us God's faithfulness. While you're turning there, I'm reminded of uh, a story that I heard of a, uh, an old, uh, you know, small little rural Alabama church, kind of a you know, country road church, and, and this little church got a new pastor, and the pastor wanted to get to know the folks in his church, and so he started meeting with all of them, and eventually he got to the Sunday school class, and so he wanted to get to know all the kids in the Sunday school class, so he invited all the little kids, kind of one by one, to come to his office and meet with him. Well, one day, these two brothers were invited after church to meet with the pastor. They were nervous to begin with. And so they're sitting outside the little hallway there of his office, and eventually he opens the door and invites the oldest brother in. Oldest brother comes in, door closes behind him, sits in a big oversized chair, sitting there in this meager office, but this pastor is strutting around in this office. And he says to the oldest brother, he says, Son, where is God? You know, kind of in that southern preacher drawl, you know? G-A-W-D, where is God? Well, the kid doesn't know what to, I mean, he doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know what the right answer is at this moment. 
And so the pastor says it again, looks him in the eyes and says, son, I said, where is God? Well, the kid freaks out, doesn't understand what's going on. And he sees an open window across the office that leads out to the gravel parking lot. And he makes a beeline for it, jumps out the window and lands in the bushes below. Well, this is not the response the pastor was looking for, right, in this moment. He just wanted to get to know the kid. So he then opens the door and goes to the little brother and invites the little brother in. So the little brother steps into the office. First thing he notices, his big brother is missing. All right, so now, like, sweat begins to form on his brow. He's gone. I don't know where he went. And so he sits down in the same big chair that his brother sat in. And the pastor started up with him just like he did with his brother before him. Son, where is God? Again, the kid doesn't know what to do. His knees start to shake. He doesn't know what to do. He says, son, I'm going to ask you again, where is God? Well, the kid got the same idea as his big brother, saw the open window, made a beeline for it, jumped out the window, and landed on his older brother out in the bushes below, grabbed him by the shoulder and said, we've got trouble. God's gone missing, and they think we've got something to do with it. Okay, so I love that story. Where is God? Ask anyone in the Old Testament from Moses on down the line, where is God? Where is God? And they would say something like this to you. The Lord dwells in the tabernacle. The Lord God Almighty lives in the temple, in the holy of holies. That's what they would have told you. You ask them, where is God? They could actually point to a place and say, God is over there. And we see why in Exodus 25, verse 8, God lays out his plan of faithfulness to give his people a place where they could always find him. It says this in Exodus 25, verse 8, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this, what's the word? Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And that word tabernacle means a place of meeting or a tent of meeting. That's what a tabernacle is. And it literally was like a big tent that they would keep with them. Now, why a tent? Well, because at this point they didn't have their own land. And so they were a people on the move. And so they would set up this tabernacle like a sanctuary, like a space where they would have holy artifacts that were in it. You know, they would have some things that were symbols and reminders of God's faithfulness in the past. If you've seen later Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know what I'm talking about. So those were kind of scattered among there. And it was this very sacred place that you could point to, but you couldn't enter in. In fact, only the priests could enter into the tabernacle. And in fact, of the priests, only the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, which is this small room at the center of the tabernacle, which they believed is where God's presence could be experienced. So you have to think about all of that for just one second. The God who created everything had a space created for him in this world, a physical space for a spiritual being to dwell. Just think about that for a second. And think about the fact that the way it was all set up is that you could only have one person, the high priest, enter that one place, the Holy of Holies, on one day out of the year, the Day of Atonement, where he would offer up sacrifices for the people of God. So one person, one place, one day out of the year, that's as close as they could get to God in a world where sin had separated them from God. So great is God's holiness, his purity, that if he were to just unleash himself in this world, it would utterly consume us. 
And so God has this space, this place created for himself. And later, King David would come because the tabernacle was ransacked and was taken away by their enemies and all the artifacts were taken away. And so years later, King David wanted to reestablish the tabernacle as a way of worship with God because the people once again had forgotten all about God. And so many years later, after God establishes the tabernacle, David says, I want to build God a permanent palace where no one can come and destroy it or take it away. And so he says to God, I'm going to build you a temple. And God says, that sounds great, but there is too much blood under your fingernails because you've been a king under many wars and your hands are not holy enough to build this. It won't happen in your lifetime, but it will through your son, Solomon. He will build this temple for me. And so Solomon sets out to build the temple for God. And basically what he does is take all of the ideas of the tabernacle and supersize them. I mean, just makes them bigger and way more intense, beautiful, outrageous detail that went into the temple. Years and years and years, millions and millions and millions of dollars by our currency today spent on the temple. In fact, in 1 Kings, you can read all about it. So you might want to jot that down later just to go in 1 Kings and read some of the details that went into this temple that Solomon built. I mean, unbelievable marble floors and pillars and columns, gold columns, unbelievable fabrics literally brought in from all over the world. No expense was spared. It was unbelievable and at times a little over the top. I mean, had Liberace been alive in that day, he might have said, now that's a bit much. (laughs) That's how intense and beautiful the temple was because what Solomon wanted to do was say, our God is a God worthy of all of our worship and praise. He deserves the finest and the greatest and the best things. And so once again, they built a physical space for this spiritual being. And God did inhabit and met with the high priest in the Holy of Holies. There was a place where you could point to where God was. And God established a system of temple worship. And it was a very specific and at times very elaborate series of sacrifices and celebrations and feasts and fasts that occurred in and around the temple. There was a calendar throughout the year that they would keep that reminded them of God's faithfulness. So now they had a place they could look to where they knew that God was and a way that they could live with God. And every one of the sacrifices, what's so interesting about all the specifics about them, was not the sacrifices themselves, but what they were to represent. And ultimately what they were really all about. What they were really all about was the heart of the people coming to God. That's what God cares about most. They were to prepare people's hearts to be with, to live with God in this world, to remind, to break our hearts over our sin, and to remind us of what life with God is like in this world. And it's not too surprising, at least you shouldn't be surprised given what we've seen so far, is that over time, their hearts grew cold towards God. And all of the systems of sacrifices and celebrations and fasts and feasts that God brought throughout the year to keep them in a rhythm and a way of living with him, they forgot about it all and their hearts turned hard and their eyes began to wander to the greener grass of other nations. Because despite all that God had done for them, from the covenants to the commandments to the tabernacle to the temple, there was something they thought that God was holding out on them with. 
What they wanted, other nations had. They wanted a king. Everyone else has got a king. We want a king. And so that's what they demanded for. So what I want you to do is to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's on page 190 in the Gray Bible. 190 in the Gray Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 8. The people of God begin to demand for a king. The passage we're going to look at in 1 Samuel 8 gives us a window into their wanting and into their whining for a king. At this point, God had given them judges uh, that weren't kings, but they were leaders that were sent by God to sort of guide and to guard the people of God as they continued to grow. And what we see here is Samuel is the last of the judges that spoke for God on his behalf. He just didn't know he was the last judge at the time. And so they came to him and they made their request known. This is 1 Samuel verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 6. Listen to this. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, kind of like that, uh, this displeased Samuel. He didn't like it. So he prayed to the Lord. Verse 7, and the Lord told him, I want you to pay attention to this, to the wisdom and the heart of God in this moment. Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. They've rejected me as their king. And he says in verse 8, this is what they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day. See the pattern of faithfulness and forgetfulness. Forsaking me and serving other gods. So that's what they're doing to you right now. Verse 9. So listen to them. God says, listen to them. But warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Now what is God saying here? He's giving them a little warning. He's giving them a little window into it. He says, okay, okay, okay. We can let them have what they want because what they are missing is all these kings that they are obsessed with. They're missing that all of these kings are obsessed with power. And that the number one job in a king's job description, number one line in a king's job description is rule over people. That's what kings do. And that's exactly what they did to the people of God. And God's warning them, okay, this is what's going to happen to you. People of God had never been ruled over by anyone at this point other than God. So God decided to let them have their way, not as a way of sort of giving up, you know, because they said please so many times, you know, and they pulled on his pant leg and finally he said, okay, you can have a king. Not at all. He gave over. He gave them over to their desires. Okay, okay. If you want, that's really what you want? Okay. You've rejected me as your one true king. You can have your way. And it turned out to be perhaps their greatest undoing. Not surprisingly, the king experiment failed and ended up dividing and even destroying what it was supposed to protect and reign and rule over. And there were bright spots along the way. Don't get me wrong. King David, bright spot. King Solomon, bright spot. But not a lot. There were 41 kings in total and one queen who ruled over the people of God during this kind of king part of the Old Testament. And of them, only 10 could be considered kind of good. The rest were very bad. So that's like just do the math. About 25% kind of good. The rest terrible. In fact, some were downright evil. And they ended up undoing all that the people of God 
so desperately wanted them to do. So let me just hit pause to the notes in the Bible and just come over here and talk to you for a second. I wonder then why it is all these many years later that some people can get so hung up and so desiring to bring this nation back to a Christian nation. And there's a belief that if we can get a Christian president, then we will have a Christian nation. And I totally get that. I'm a Christian. I live in this nation. I get it. <laughs> and it's right to want to vote for and elect someone that kind of aligns with your values and beliefs. I get that. That's a great thing. But I can't find an instance in the Bible where God's power and present was, presence was contingent on any elected official. Where God's power and presence was contingent on any policies that were enacted. That he stands above it all. And in fact, God's hope is not in that. God's hope is in you. And God's hope is in me and everyday ordinary folks who will fully and wholly devote ourselves to him and live out our life with him in this nation that we would actually be a people who love our neighbor, who know our neighbor, that we would actually care for the poor, that we would speak up and speak for the oppressed in our city, in our world, that we would actually be a people who visit prisoners in jail and who welcome refugees into our homes, that we would be a people who pray for our leaders rather than persecuting them on social media. My hunch is any time that we put our hope in an elected official, we are tiptoeing in the footsteps of the Israelites. And my theory is, my hunch is, God is putting a whole lot more hope and faith in you and me than any of that, as important as it may be. Now back to the Bible. <laughs> <clears throat> Come back here. Okay, so the, is, the Israelites faced the terrible, terrible, the king experiment failed miserably for them and ended up dividing them and they began to become lost people in this world. And so yet again, God steps in and he steps between us and our rejection of him. His faithfulness comes in again right into the midst of our forgetfulness. And God sends in the last quarter of the Old Testament these voices who spoke on his behalf, known as prophets. God sent prophets into this world to speak on his behalf. The prophets were kind of like the judges who came before them, like we just read from Samuel, kind of like them. Uh, but these characters were very, very much characters. They spoke uh, to the people of God on behalf of God, about the heart of God, and they did it in lots of unique and distinct ways. And so if you have a Bible, turn to 2 Chronicles 24, page 313. So page 313, 2 Chronicles 24. Again, e each of these prophets were unique, but they had one thing in common, their message and how it was received. 2 Chronicles 24, verse 18. God is speaking again, telling the story of the people of God, which we've just walked through over these last couple minutes. And this is what he says. They abandoned the temple of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and worshiped Asherah poles and idols. Now, because of their guilt, or because that they have done this, 
God's anger came on Judah and Jerusalem, which is another way of saying the people of God who'd been divided at this point. Verse 19, although the Lord sent prophets to the people to bring them back, that was always the point of the prophets, not to condemn, but to bring back, to bring them back to God. And though they testified against them, the people just would not listen. The prophets who occupy the pages of the last quarter of the Old Testament, very distinct, unique characters, but they had this one thing in common, their message, and their message was very clear and very consistent. Repent, repent, turn back to God, repent. No, seriously, we mean it this time, repent. No, God's not messing around, repent. That's what they said over and over and over and over again, and by this point, it was pretty much fallen on deaf ears. Prophets like Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jonah and many more spoke on God's behalf, but the people weren't having any of it. The prophets did all that God had asked them to do to win back the attention, to win back the hearts of the people of God, but it all seemed in vain. And no matter what God did to go between his people and their sin, they just weren't listening anymore. And so God speaks through the very last prophet, Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament. And the very last prophecy at the end of the Old Testament is the last time God spoke to his people for 400 years. God said, okay, this is another kind of giving over. Okay, you don't want to listen. I couldn't have been clear through the covenants, the commandments, the tabernacle, the temple. I even tried to use some of those kings through my prophets. You just aren't listening, so I won't speak. And for 400 years, there was a silence like the earth had never heard before, where God remained silent. And the people continued to wander and forget their faithful God. But what they couldn't see, what they couldn't hear, is what God was setting up in the background, what God had actually been establishing the whole time that God was preparing the world like a inhale in for what was to come, which was his son, Jesus Christ, who would break the silence. And as John, the gospel writers we'll see next week spoke of, like a word spoken by God into this world, shattered the silence of God that had plagued this world for the 400 years since the last prophet Malachi. So that, my friends, is the whole Old Testament. You did it. Give yourselves a hand. You're still here, and some of you are still awake, so that's amazing. You just walked through, and again, we just brushed the surface, 30,000-foot level, but what you can see when you do that, when you kind of fly by the Old Testament, you see that pattern, don't you? God is faithful. We're forgetful. God is? Okay, again, it's, we talked about it earlier. God is faithful. We're forgetful. We see it over and over and over and over and over again. God is faithful. We are forgetful. But if you look a little deeper than that, you see something else going on between every movement of God where he steps between us and our sin and even how God leverages what the people put between them and God by establishing kings and choosing to worship them and follow them instead of God. God leverages and uses all of that. It's as though God is going to use what he's going to use. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. He's going to use what he's going to use to get you 
to trust and to choose. God's going to use, listen, what he's going to use. He is going to use what he's going to use. But all of it is to get you to trust and to choose him. What do you think God is using in your life right now? What might he be using? Now, I'm not saying causing, I'm saying using. Because there are things in our lives that God does not cause. God didn't cause the kings to happen. God did use them though. And he used them to bring the people back to him even though they would eventually forget him. So what is God using? What might God be using right now in your life to draw you back to him? I mean, I can think of people in my life that God has used that I thank God for. People that have grown me up. I'm going to meet with a mentor later on this afternoon, this evening, who has greatly shaped my view of God, my love of God. I'm so grateful that God has used her to get me to choose and to trust him more. Who might God be using in your life? And maybe you don't even realize that God's been using them. God has been using them to speak truth to your life, to encourage you. Listen, the person that God is using in your life to help you choose and trust him may actually be sitting next to you right now. And what they would tell you is the point is not about them. It's not like they want credit or points for any of this. The whole point of why they've been faithful to telling you about God, to reminding you about God, to even bringing you here today is so that you can know this God that's changed their life. So who might God be using to get you to trust and to choose? What are the circumstances in your life, maybe even unwelcome circumstances, that God did not cause, but he will use to get you to trust and to choose him. I think of rejection in my life. I don't like rejection. But I think of how it has stripped me down and has made me aware of who I really am in God. I think of loss in my life, people I love that have died or that have moved away, kind of gone away, relationships lost how much that hurts and I would never choose those things but I can see now through the rearview mirror of God's faithfulness how he's used those things to help me choose and to trust him are there any circumstances in your life right now that God might be using to help you to trust and to choose him could it be that there's more to your heartache and more to this heartbreak than just what you feel on the surface that maybe what you need more to help heal and walk you from the pain of that last relationship isn't another relationship right now. It's a relationship with God where he can remind you of who you really are in him, where he can heal your hurting heart. So he could even use that pain. Maybe you're out of work right now. You've lost a job. You would not have chosen that. You don't like it. But my God actually be using even that circumstance that he didn't cause but he may have allowed so that you could choose to trust that he will provide for you he is faithful you can depend on him you can bank your life on him see God's going to use what he's going to use to get you and me to trust and to choose so I just wonder what he might be using in your life right here right now today and would you be open to seeing it as an invitation from God. To seeing it as a way of knowing God more or maybe even coming to know God for the very first time in your life. So I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to respond together by 
singing to this one that we just read about, we just talked about. And, and what I love is not only do we see throughout the Old Testament of each of the things that we move through today, not only do we see how God uses all of the things that he uses to draw us to him, but there's even a deeper thread that's woven through these pages. Because each and every thing that we just looked at over the last 25 minutes or so, each and every one of those things, do you know that every one of those things from covenants to commandments to the tabernacle to the temple, even the kings and the prophets, all of those actually are a prelude to Jesus. Each and every one of those things in the Old Testament is a setup for a savior to come. Because here's what I love, here's what I love. Jesus is actually our, the Bible calls him our new covenant. He's the new deal, the new promise that your sins and my sins can be covered by his blood, his death, his resurrection. That's God's new promise, his new deal, and it's for you. He is actually referred to as the high priest, the one who goes before into the presence of God on your behalf and mine and says, she is holy, he is holy, he is blameless, she is blameless because of me, the high priest, Jesus our high priest, goes before God on your behalf and takes you to him. Thank God that he is the fulfillment and the completion of all that we just looked at that he is actually the fulfillment of every law and what he adds to every law that he perfectly kept is this little thing called grace where he says you cannot keep it all on your own so I extend grace on top of the law on top of every commandment because you cannot but I can and what we see in Jesus is he is our true king our one true king who will reign forever. And it's around his throne that one day I pray you and I will be together where we can worship him in all of his majesty and all of his glory and recognize him as the cornerstone of it all, the cornerstone of our faith, the cornerstone of every story of this book, of this entire book itself, the cornerstone of your life and mine. So we're going to sing to that Jesus right now. We're going to claim him as such. And so I'd invite you to pray with me as we prepare to sing. Jesus, thank you for the truth of who you are that is so much greater than we could possibly imagine. You are actually woven into every page of this book. You're woven through every season in the Old Testament. You are the completion and the fulfillment, the ultimate sacrifice for our sin, the atonement that we need, our way to God. Jesus, it's you. And so we thank you, Jesus, that every time we read the Old Testament, we can be drawn right to you. And every time we consider our forgetfulness, we can be drawn back to God's faithfulness because of you. So help us to choose today to not forget, but to mark and to celebrate and to live in the reality of your love for us. Even now in this moment, we pray in your name.